Welcome. Thank you for watching this teaching video from Oak Tree Community Church in South Bend, Indiana. Please check out our other videos and don't forget to like and subscribe. Our mission is to help people come to know Jesus better and love Him more every day. We believe this will not only help our own spiritual growth, but also help us better influence the community and the world for Christ. For more information about Oak Tree, please visit us at oaktreechurch.com. There you'll find past message series, online giving options, and more information about our discipleship process that we call The Path. Now, enjoy this message. We'd love to hear from you in the comments or the website contact form. Thank you. There we go. If you don't like the term hermeneutics, that's fine. A lot of people don't. Just use the term Bible study, and that's close enough. We'll get there, right? <laughs> uh, we're working, uh, we started this series last time about... I just skip the top word there, the principles and practices of basic Bible study. And it is a series on how do we take this book and understand it on our own. Because, you know, if we're here for a little over an hour or so, a couple hours on a Sunday, and that's the only time that we're in the Bible, that's a problem. That's a real problem, right? So if we are going to understand what God has for us, on our own, in our daily readings and study, well, there is, believe it or not, a right and a wrong way to do that. In fact, there's several wrong ways to do that, and uh, we'll look at several of those this morning, a handful of those at least. Um, last week, we were, on, we were talking about this concept of inspiration and authority. Why is it worth it? Before we even get into how to do this, uh, we were talking about why is it, why should we, why is it worth it? What are, what are we, what do we gain from this? And we're going to keep coming back to some of that as we go through. But I'm thinking about uh, just a couple of songs that we sing, one this morning, one last week, actually, that when they came out, they got some pushback from people who are really, some, from some people, I guess, who are really strong on this idea of, Bible study. So, for instance, and, and we, don't, we don't get our theology from our songs. In fact, our songs should support the theology, the doctrine we already believe. Uh, this is why we sing the songs that we do, and we don't sing certain songs, because I don't want you to learn songs and have them stuck in your head and in your heart and in your mind that you're singing and humming all week long. There would be nothing that we would ever teach. It would be, they, they go against what you believe. Because even if you forget everything that I say, the song is going to stick with you, right? That's how music works. And so we want to make sure that the music supports what we believe and teach so that it can build your, your spiritual life and encourage you and everything throughout the week. So last week we sang a song that starts, it's called My Savior, My God. Great song. Love the song. Got some really neat stuff in it. But the very first line is, I am not skilled to understand. What God has willed, what God has planned. And if you're just thinking, if you're just singing the song, you're like, oh, God's higher than I am, and I can't understand what He does. And Isaiah 55 says, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, and your ways are higher than my ways. And that is absolutely true. But some people pushed back on that. They said, hold on a second. We can be skilled to understand. Right? So... 
there's, uh, there's a lens. How are we looking at this? Are we singing it from an Isaiah 55 standpoint? Or are we singing it from a hermeneutic standpoint? That's the problem with songs, is because a song doesn't tell the whole story. A song takes a snapshot, and it can be, much like the Bible, interpreted. And people, you've probably heard this, well, that's just your interpretation. Right? That's just your interpretation. Well, that's open to interpretation. Well, we've got to be careful. Okay? Sang a song this morning. Good, good father. And uh, some people, when that came out, some people really pushed back against this first, uh, these first couple of lines of good, good father because it says that um, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. I've heard what they think. But the follow-up is, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night. And some people are looking at this saying, ah, that's very experience-driven, right? You've got to be careful about your heart in the middle of the night. You've got to be careful about your experiences. You have to be very careful. You, you, and, and some people look at that song, and again, a, song's, a song doesn't tell the whole story, right? A song is little snapshots trying to build some emotion and build some stuff. But some people looked at that song and there was some critique of that song, some critics who came out and said, see, what you're saying is that it doesn't matter what anybody else says. There are preachers, there are teachers, there are all these people that are trying to tell you what the Bible says. And you're like, oh, I'm just going to live on experience. Is that what the song says? Probably not. Can you get that out of that? Sure, if that's what you're looking for. So there's just a couple of examples of even in the music that we sing, we have to be careful about, has anybody sat down with the writers of these songs, Aaron Schuess, Chris Tomlin, to sit down and say, okay, what exactly was it that you were thinking? Any, anybody here do that? No? Okay. There might be a YouTube video out there that where somebody did do that. And if you're that concerned, you should probably look that up and see what is the author's intent when they wrote that song. Now, maybe they did write that song and it's completely different than what we believe and the way we would approach it. But again, it's their song. It's not meant to be the whole story. They're just grabbing snapshots. And don't you know, a lot of music is written at a very specific time in life based on the environment and the situation, not a person's entire experience, entire life. This is why, and I've said it many, many times before, and I'll say it again, we don't grab our theology from songs. We want our songs to reflect our theology. If you're a songwriter, you want to build good theology into songs. And we want to sing songs that support what we believe and enhance what we believe. But ultimately, where we landed last week was in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul said, don't go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what's written. This is where we have to get our belief system from. So what we're going to do this week is, um, uh, last week we, we, looked about, we looked at inspiration, the authority that we get because this is God's Word. It is God's truth. Okay, It is true. It is what God has preserved for us, wrote down for us. And um, 
It's a, it's a series that's a little bit more about the Bible than in the Bible. We will get to the Bible. Believe me, trust me, we will get there. A couple more things about the Bible today. And we're going to look at some concepts and some definitions. So if you are a note taker, you're an academic person, this is going to be right up your alley. Okay. If you're like, mm, that is not my thing, suck it up. Because this is good stuff, okay? <laughs> this is good stuff. You need to know this stuff. Uh, the, the guy last week, Dr. Ryrie, the, the quote that we used when he was teaching, he's been dead for a few years now, but when he was teaching, whenever he started a new class, a new semester or whatever, the very first thing out of his, that he would do after introductions and everything, he said, all right, let's define our terms. Let's make sure that as we're talking this semester, that we know what we're talking about, that I'm not using a term this way and you're using it a different way and we end up talking past each other, right? So we've got to do that a little bit. And some of these words you've heard me say, some of them you're like, this is going to be new to me. That's fine. And frankly, I don't care if you ever use them again in your entire life. Okay, it's not a big deal if you use the terms, but we have to know the concepts. That's why I put concepts first. Concepts matter in how we do things. And so uh, before we get to the actual basic Bible study process, four steps next week, I want to lay out why we're going in that particular direction. Okay? We're going to have our friend Sherlock Holmes with us this week uh, a couple of times. That was the best non specific because my particular my, my favorite Sherlock Holmes may not be your favorite Sherlock Holmes and if I put him up there you just wouldn't listen so uh, Sherlock Holmes we, we know the study how how does Sherlock Holmes work okay somebody comes to him with a problem right it could be a crime it could be you know just a, a situation it could be whatever somebody comes to him with the problem he already knows what the answer is in the sense that he knows the conclusion. He knows what happened. He already has the end. What's his job? To get the middle stuff, right? To find the clues that led to that situation. Who done it? How did they do it? Right? Those are the questions that he's asking because he already knows the end. In study, whether it's Bible study or any other kind of study, we call that deductive. You've heard this before, deductive, right? We're going to deduce what happened. Deductive study says all of my, or I already have the conclusion, or uh, sorry, I already have a theory, I already have a hypothesis, I already know where I think it's going, and all of my work is moving in that direction. Okay, I'm trying to prove what I think is already true. You see how that could be a problem in Bible study? I think I know what the passage already says. I think I know what it means. I think I know what the doctrine or the theology is. I think I know what I'm supposed to do. And now in my study, I'm going to try to prove that. I've already got my conclusion, and now I'm just going to work, find the verses that support my beliefs. Right, And if the passage doesn't say that, I'm sure I can find one that does. Right? Is deductive study good in some fields? Yeah. Deductive, or deduct, detective work and Sherlock Holmes type stuff. Is it good for Bible study? I don't think so. I don't think so. 
Part of or one of the things that shows up in deductive study is this concept of presuppositions. And this happens all the time. In fact, right now, you came to church, whether you're here physically, whether you're online, whether you're watching later on a recording, doesn't matter. You came to this with a bucket full, maybe a bathtub full of presuppositions. Like, I didn't even know what that was. Okay? You can use the term assumptions. All right, everybody knows what assumptions are. Things that we already believe to be true, and as we, when we open the Scriptures, we just assume that that's already true. Presuppositions. We presuppose something that's assumed to be true beforehand taken for granted. So, for instance, um, I come to the Bible, and based on some of the stuff that we talked about last week, when I open the Bible, I assume that this is God's Word. That this is what God wrote. It is 100% true. It is 100% error-free. And I assume that to be true. I hope that you have a similar assumption, a similar presupposition when you come to Scripture. Is that an okay assumption when we come to Bible study? Yes. In fact, it's probably a very, very good one. Is that an okay assumption if we study anything else? I assume 100%. Uh, I'm reading the newspaper. I'm looking at the news headlines. I'm reading a blog. I assume it's 100% true. No questions asked, right? No. <laughs> no. In fact, you have a different assumption when you read blogs and newspapers, don't you? You have an assumption, I'm not sure I can trust this person. I have to be very careful. I have to be very critical as I'm reading this. That's an assumption that you may or may not have acknowledged, but you bring it to everything that you read. There are people that you talk to, that you go into the conversation with a whole load of presuppositions, a whole load of assumptions. I can trust them, I can't trust them. I assume, I, pre, I have presupposition, I assume this to be true, they're my boss and they have authority over me and I've got to be careful what I say. Right? We bring baggage with us to every conversation, to every book, to every newspaper. Every time we open the Bible, we bring these presuppositions with us. And some of them are good and some of them are very, very bad. And I'll show you some of those this morning. I believe that the Bible is true. Every time I open it, that's one of my presuppositions. And so when it says something that can be hard to understand, when it, when it says something that uh, that just does not make sense, when it says something that is, is like, I'm not sure if, I, wow. My presupposition says it's true. God said it. God wrote it. If one of us is wrong, it's not the Bible. Right? If one of us has a problem, it's me, not God. But that's a presupposition that we have to build in. Otherwise, we come to this and say, yeah, I'm not sure I can believe that. And so we go off in a different direction because we have not built that into our lives. This is true no matter what. I may not understand it properly. I may have questions about it, and that's fine. But if I don't have a foundational belief that this is true, I can spiral off into all sorts of of weirdness, right? Okay, that's presuppositions. Now, the opposite side of deductive study is called inductive study. 
An inductive study says, I don't know what the outcome is. I don't know what the conclusion is. I have no idea where we're going. So I'm going to be very careful and grab every clue and every piece of information I can. And when, in order to get to the end, I start putting this together, I build to the conclusion instead of already thinking I know what the end is and just trying to prove it. Right? This is the type of Bible study that we should be doing, this type of inductive Bible study. Okay? We start with a passage. We say, all right, I'm going to study. If you're following along with our soap readings, we're in the book of Job. And you say, okay, I'm going to study the book of Job. Let's go to Job chapter 1, and I'm going to read it. What do I do with this? Do I already know what I want it to say? Nope. Nope. I'm starting, I'm reading verse 1, then I'm reading verse 2, then I'm reading verse 3, and I'm building, building my thoughts based on the text itself. That's inductive Bible study. That's what we want to do. One of the theological terms that we use in this is called exegesis. Woo, right? Exegesis, it's a compound Greek word. The, word, the, the, the little word ex at the beginning means out from. Out from. Gesis there, okay. Again, uh, um, um, I think is um, means to to lead or to bring or to draw in a sense. If you're drawing out, when this word is used together, exegetomai in uh, in John chapter one, this is great. It's it's one of those uh, great verses that shows up uh, right around Christmas time. John chapter one, verse eighteen. No one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of Father, He has, exegetomide Him, He has explained Him. He has taken the information, drawn it out, and made a conclusion based on what is already there. Exegesis means to draw out or to explain. We're taking all of the individual parts and bringing them together in a scientific you didn't know that you have to have a scientific method for Bible study, right? In a very methodical, analytical way to come to the conclusion. Why? Because I don't know what the conclusion is. If I already knew what it meant, why would I have to study it? If I'm just going to open the Bible and try to prove what I already think, why am I studying the Bible? Just to grab uh, support for my, my beliefs? No. I want to open the Bible because if this really is God's Word, I want to hear from Him, right? That's what we're doing. And so we say, okay, what is it, God, that you said? And are there questions I need to ask? Are there conclusions I need to come to? And I'm going to build based on what I have here. That's inductive study. That's exegesis. Okay, one more big term here. And that is, uh-oh, here's our big word, hermeneutics. I, 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 I was going to get to it. We've been using it for two weeks now. Hermeneutics, the shortest definition or the shortest uh, uh, definition in, in a book that was written like 150 years ago or whatever is still a classic textbook in Bible college and seminary. Hermeneutics is the science and the art of interpretation. And like I said last week, it's not limited to Bible. 
Every time we have to, every time data is put in front of us, if you're a computer programmer, if you're a musician, if you're a literature person, if you're a, a, an engineer, if you're whatever your whatever your thing, your your uh, your industry, your field, it doesn't matter. When data of any kind is put in front of you, and you have to figure out what it means, you're doing hermeneutics. It could be math formulas. It could be science formulas. It could be all sorts of things. Here's the information. Now I have to figure out what it means. You're doing, you're doing hermeneutics. Everybody does it. We just don't know about it. Okay? We're interpreting what's in front of us. Now, two things. It's both a science and an art. And sometimes we think those two are mutually exclusive, right? There's the sciences and there are the arts. And never the twain shall meet, right? Two completely different halves of our brain, right? <laughs> we've got the left brain in the sciences. We've got the right brain in the arts, right? And, and we separate these things. Well, a lot of things are both. And hermeneutics is one. It's a science because there really are rules that need to be followed. And all the artists out there are like, right? Rules, don't want to follow rules. Right? And the scientists are like, yeah, make it, make it, you know, step one, step two, step three. I love it that way. Okay. There really are things that we have to do in order to make sure that we interpret the data that's in front of us, no matter what our industry is. But it's also in art. And this is what some of us scientists don't like is that it does take practice, it does take skill, it does take more than just if you follow these 10 steps, you're going to get the same outcome every time. Sometimes life works that way, right? But many times it doesn't. Okay? Because of environments, because of all sorts of variables, because of weird stuff that goes on, sometimes you have to have a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of art, a little bit of skill to say, Okay, yeah, that this time the step doesn't apply. And it really makes it hard when you're training somebody, right? You say, here's what you're supposed to do. And they do it and it breaks or it comes out wrong. Like, oh, well, you were supposed to skip step five this time. Well, write it down. Well, I can't write it down because it's not always you skip step five. Sometimes you skip step five and sometimes you don't. Well, how am I supposed to know? Eh, you just know. That's the art side of things, right? Right? I mean, we know this is true, right? This is life. Forget the Bible for now. This is just life. But the same thing is true in Bible study. As we're studying the Bible, as we're unpacking the data that is in here, trying to figure out what does it mean, what am I supposed to know about it, what am I supposed to do about it, sometimes we can just say, step, 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 no problem. Sometimes we're like, step, step, step. wait a minute. That one's going to take a little bit of extra work. Right, And we have to have the wisdom, the skill, the knowledge, and that comes with practice. That comes with practice. In fact, Hebrews chapter 5 says that the mature person is the one who has their senses trained to discern right from wrong, truth from error, and it's trained by practice. We don't come into this world just knowing right from wrong. We don't come into this world just having all of the formulas and everything. We have to practice everything that we do. 
And it's not, like sometimes we hear, it's not practice makes perfect, right? We know that practice makes something and it's not always perfect, right? Perfect practice makes perfect. But if we practice something wrong every time, what are we going to do when we get to the game? You're going to do it wrong. If you practice, if you, if, you, if you memorize the wrong formula, if you practice something that's not quite right, once it's time to actually, when it's go time, we're going to get it wrong. But I practiced, but I studied. Well, yeah, you studied the wrong thing. Sorry. <laughs> you practiced the wrong thing. You practiced the wrong shot. You practiced whatever. Okay, this is why firstborns are so messed up. <laughs> and I say that as a firstborn. Because parents, if you've never been a parent before, what do you know about parenting? Only what people have told you. And you come into it with a ton of presuppositions that are all blown away within the first uh, several days or weeks or months, right? What's that? Or minutes, right? Yeah, minutes, right? All right, firstborns are guinea pigs. It's just the way it is. There's no, it's just the way it is. Our parents don't know anything. Grandparents are trying to help because they come with a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. But when we're young and new parents, we don't listen to a lot of people, right? Until we're on that side and we're like, hey, I have some information that can help you. And our kids are like, Psh, I'm not listening to you. Like, I wonder if that's what my parents thought when, uh, <laughs> when I was that age. Firstborns are guinea pigs because parents don't know anything yet. We're trying things. We come in with our books and we come in with our set of presuppositions and we think we know the way it's going to go. And what do you know? It takes practice to get it right. Some people have really, really big families and they never get it right. Some people have just one because they think they've perfected it. I don't know what the thinking process is. <laughs> and this is where the analogy breaks down, right? Every industry, every field, every everything is like this. There are rules. There are certain things that are right and wrong. And there are things that are just like trial and error. We just have to learn on the job. Okay? Hermeneutics is the same way. And Bible study is the same way. I've been doing this long enough, and many of you have been studying the Bible long enough, that you can look back over your life and you come across a passage and you're like, I cannot believe I ever thought that that's what that meant. I, I used to think this about God. I used to think that this is what that passage meant. And now I've got 20, 30, 40 years under my belt, and I'm like, what in the world was I thinking? How did I miss that? Right? Because you didn't have a skill yet. You didn't have the practice yet. You know what that's called? Growth. Maturity. You know how sad it would be? And I've had some conversations like this, and it is sad. Somebody who's been reading the Bible 30, 40, 50 years and they've never changed their mind on anything. They've never changed their beliefs on anything. That tells me they haven't grown in any way. It's okay to change what you believe. Unless you're perfect like me and you got it right the first time, right? No, come on. Come on. 
We can be confident today in what we believe. I should not be doing this job if I was not confident. If I came up here week after week and I'm like, well, you know, I don't know. Go ahead and figure it out on your own. But here's my opinion. I shouldn't be doing this job, right? You wouldn't come to listen to somebody just sort of, well, you know, it could be three or four different things. Have fun with it. You want to hear what does the Bible say? You want to say, how do I study this? Is it possible that I'm wrong? Yes, which is why it's so important that you can do this on your own too, right? Because it's not just what I say. I love Acts chapter 17 where Paul went to a city named Berea and he was teaching about the Scriptures and they're like, yeah, we've heard of you, but we're going to double check every word you say. So they opened the Scriptures and everything Paul said. Can you imagine fact-checking the Apostle Paul? Paul's like, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. Hold on just a second. Let me see if I can find that somewhere in here. These are things, you laugh because these are, there are certain things that you take for granted. Like the Apostle Paul knew what he was talking about and Jesus really is the Son of God. That's a presupposition. And they didn't know that information yet. And they were wise enough to double check. And the same thing is true. I'm not an apostle. I don't have words directly from God unless it's in this book. And so you've got to double-check me just like they double-checked Paul. And you're going to be better for it if you do that instead of just taking my word. And I know that many of you already do that, and that's great. I remember, um, and I'm sure I've shared this, this story, but I remember one time years ago, I was... I was uh, um, I've been a teaching pastor in this church for uh, for 20 years now, and years ago I was only a few years into it, and you know I was really excited. I don't even remember what the message was about, but I was you know up there doing my thing and I was teaching and I was confident. And do you know that sometimes, if you're really excited about something, sometimes you misspeak. You say something that was not in your head. You say something, something comes out of your mouth you didn't mean, you don't believe it, but you don't hear it and you just keep on going. Well, that happened one day in a, in a message. I was, I was teaching and, and I was, I was teaching. The, the, the topic that I was on at that point was eternal security. We cannot lose our salvation. And I believe that. I believe the Bible teaches that. Once you know Jesus is your Savior, you cannot lose that for any reason whatsoever. And I was passionate. I was just like, and we have to remember, we can lose our salvation. That little word not makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? And my good friend, teacher, mentor in many, many ways, Melba Pyramid, in our in our in our building that we had way back then, she was sitting on this side about uh, I think two thirds or three quarters of the way back, and she's like, <laughs> "What did you just say?" I'm like, "I don't remember what did I just say." And everybody in a big chorus, <laughs> they were listening. You said you can lose our we can lose our salvation. Okay, that is not what I meant at all. All right, let's try that again. Back up, rewind. We can not, thank you, lose ourselves. Just because we're passionate about something, just because we're sincere about something, just because we even know what's in our minds does not mean 
that that's what we're going to say, right? So we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful about that. Um, all right, I wasn't going to tell you. One more. All right, one more. Have you heard of the Jefferson Bible? Speaking on that little word, not. The Jefferson Bible, this is great. Classic piece of American history. Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. Okay? Thomas Jefferson was not a believer. He believed in providence. He believed in maybe there's some kind of God out there or whatever. He was not a Christian. Um, he did not believe in miracles. He did not believe in, in the supernatural like uh, involved in our lives. And so he went through his Bible, and, and this is just history, cutting out things that he didn't like. He took scissors, cut out miracles, cut out things, resurrection. He did not agree with. Okay? See, when you do that, it's a whole lot easier to get to your conclusion because you don't even have to go through the stuff that might change your mind. Right? <laughs> he already had a conclusion, and he, instead of you know just leaving it and ignoring the stuff that was in there, he actually went so far as to just cut it out altogether. It's not even going to be in his field of view. We can't do that. We can't do that. We can't do that physically. We can, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't do it physically, and we shouldn't do it mentally. We should not let our presuppositions, the things that we already believe, drive where we're going. We acknowledge them. We say, okay, I believe certain things. I've studied this passage before. I think this is what it's talking about, but I'm willing to change if that's where the Scriptures lead me. I don't cut things out because it disagrees with what I already believe. Okay? We've got to be very careful with that. Hermeneutics, the science and the art of interpretation, it's both a science and it's an art. Let me give you a couple of examples of wrong methods, wrong ways to approach the Bible. Some of these you have done. Some of these you probably have not done. We all have at some point. Some of these entire denominations and religions are built on. Okay? Some of these you're going to be like, oh yeah, I've heard people say that. They, talk, they tell me that and I can't believe that they believe that. Some people will do what's called allegorizing or spiritualizing the text. Now, again, you don't have to know the, the, the terms, but here's the concepts behind it. There is There must be a hidden meaning in the text that we have to uncover. What it says can't possibly be what it means. There has to be a deeper meaning, a hidden meaning, a spiritual meaning. This comes right out of Greek philosophy. And it started to infiltrate the church within decades after the last apostle John died. Once the apostles were gone and they were the guardians of the truth, this started infiltrating the church. And literally within decades, there were, there were little factions within the church. Well, that can't be what it really means. What it really means is we start digging for hidden meaning. Sometimes... And this, this happened in Greek mythology. I mean, have, have you thought about the Greek gods? You know, bastions of morality and everything, aren't they? <clears throat> you know, some of these Greek gods and Roman gods are, are uh, you know, the worst 
in their uh, morality, in their ethics, you know, that sort of thing. And some Greek philosophers came to the conclusion, maybe we shouldn't be telling these stories to our children. These are not exactly role models, right? And so they took their mythology and they said, we have to fix some things in the story because we don't like this, and so maybe we should say it this way. There's a problem, we have to fix it. There are some people who come to the Scriptures and say, yeah, wow, that's a problem. I can't believe God would say that. I can't believe God would do that. I have to fix it. This is what it must really mean. One of the biggest ones that is still going on today, it's, been, it's happened for uh, uh, almost 2,000 years now, has to do with Messiah's kingdom. All throughout the Old Testament, God told uh, the people of Israel, there's going to be a kingdom. I myself will rule. God will rule. Messiah will rule in Jerusalem, in Israel, on this planet. And Israel, you are going to be the center of the world. You are going to be absolutely wealthy. This is every, all of the promises, all of the blessings that I've been telling you will one day come true. You get to the early church within the first couple of hundred years, a guy by the name of Origen, a guy by the name of Augustine, whose theology became the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church, said, wow, the church is supposed to be a spiritual entity, not a physical entity. And because we don't see any distinction between the Israel of the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, we're all just sort of blended together. I don't see how there could possibly be a rich physical kingdom, so I'm going to have to fix it. Must really, what God really meant was it's going to be a spiritual kingdom and we are the spiritual kingdom. So what about all those promises in the Old Testament? Yeah, he was just sort of, they didn't know any better, so he was just sort of um, uh, speaking to their understanding at that time. He was speaking down to them like, a, like an adult speaks down to children. He didn't really mean what he said, but that's all they could understand at that point. Really? All those promises? Yeah, he didn't really mean that physically. He meant them spiritually. And entire doctrines and entire denominations, the entire Catholic Church, that's one of their foundational beliefs, is that the church is the kingdom in this world right now. There's not going to be a literal physical kingdom where Jesus is ruling on the throne in Jerusalem, Israel, and Israel is the center of the world at that point. How did they come to that? Right here. They saw a problem it didn't match their theology, so they fixed it. <laughs> Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, if you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, why can't I do all things out of any verse that I want to do? Right? That's really what's going on here. And we laugh at that, and yet we hear people talking about stuff in the Bible all the time that does not actually match what the Bible says, including Philippians 4.13 does not say I can do anything because God will empower me to do it. Go jump off of a bridge and see how that works for you. Gravity trumps your bad theology. I mean, come on, really? 
Paul was talking about a very specific situation, and that is a one-liner in the middle of a whole context. And yet so often, this is, this is I mean, I'm a big, I'm a firm believer of, of memorizing the Bible. Mem- Bible memorization, and we do this in Treehouse Kids and our youth group, and I've memorized so many verses over my lifetime, it's unbelievable. They're in there somewhere, right? Somewhere. Sometimes I remember them, sometimes I don't. Many of you were the same. The problem that I have with Bible verse memory is that it's just one verse at a time. And we can make any one verse say anything we want. Right? I think Bible memory should be paragraphs at a time, not verses at a time, because at least we get the context around it. You're like, well, I wouldn't have won any awards and you know, if I had to memorize an entire paragraph at a time. You memorized the whole paragraph anyway. They were just individual verses. Maybe memorize a whole paragraph instead of seven verses and we would be better for it, right? Here's another way. This is called dogmatic. Uh, it's, it, sometimes we use the word dogmatic. Oh, you're just being dogmatic about that because you're strong-headed or strict or something. That's not what it means. The Greek word dogma means doctrine. So something that is dogmatic is something that is set doctrine. It is already the set thing. Okay, What dogmatic method says is, well, this is what I've always been taught. This is what our church believes. This is what our church teaches. So therefore, that must be true. I've never heard it your way before, so you must be wrong because our church would not lead us astray. And as much as you like our church and you want to believe that about our church, so does everybody else who disagrees with you. Everybody wants to believe that their church is correct. If we go through our lives reading the Bible, this is what my church says, as opposed to this is what the Bible says, even if my church is wrong sometimes, because you know that happens. (laughs) Some of you have come out of churches for this very reason. You've left churches because you've opened your Bible for yourself. You started reading something and you're like, Hold on a second. That's not what that says. And maybe you've gone to your pastors, your leaders, and you've said, hold on a second, can we talk about this one? And sometimes they're open to talking about it, and sometimes they're like, nope, this is what we believe and teach. And there's no budging. And being a church leader, I can understand. A church doesn't want to budge on what they believe and teach, and they don't want you to cause trouble, and you don't want to cause trouble. And so you leave. There's right times and wrong times to do that, okay? If you have a disagreement about something that that we teach here, I want you to come and talk to me about it, okay? Am I going to try to change your mind? Of course I'm going to try to change your mind. I'd be foolish not to, right? But at least we hopefully can have a civil discussion about it, okay? We want to believe what God's Word says, not what the church says or what the pastor says or the, or the preacher. We don't want to be dogmatic about what I've always been taught. We want to be dogmatic about this is what the Bible says. Here's one. You can call it your personal method, your personal interpretation, your theological interpretation. This is what I think it means. Well, who are you to say? right? This is what... Oh, I hate this one. I'm going to throw open my mouth just a little bit. 
Seriously, man, I hate this second one. I hate it. Please don't say it, okay? And if I do respond in a like that, it's not personal. I just really hate the second bullet point. This is what it means to me. I don't care what it means to you, frankly. And I'm not trying to be rude. You shouldn't care what it means to me. We should care what it means. To whom? The one who wrote it, right? We should care what it means. I don't care what it means to you because you're probably wrong. And you shouldn't care what it means to me because I'm probably wrong if it doesn't match what it actually means. And of course, this goes along with the other ones. This is what I want it to mean. Okay, This one happens, this, this right here, and I'm not Roman Catholic. My family, a lot of my extended family is, and I've had a lot of conversations with friends and family who are Roman Catholic. Okay, I disagree with a lot of what they believe. All right, But here's one thing that I really appreciate about their system. Okay, And I think it's a wrong system, but I'm just telling you, I, appreciate, I know the thinking behind it. Their system says, we, this is the, it's the dogmatic one, right? We have a belief and everybody is supposed to line up with that belief and everybody in our teaching says the exact same thing. You don't get to decide what it means. We've told you what it means. Okay, And they look at Protestantism, they look at churches like ours, and they're like, how many denominations can you people come up with? Over hundreds and hundreds of years. Every time somebody has a, 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 you know, a minor disagreement, well, fine, I'll start my own church. The church isn't supposed to work that way. We're supposed to be unified in our doctrine and everything. And that's true. And in many conversations I've had with uh, Roman Catholics, they're like, this is exactly what we need to avoid. Is everybody running around out there with their own Bible saying, this is what it means to me. This is what I think it means. Okay, That doesn't happen in the Roman church. At least not if they're following their, their structure. Because from the top down, they've already decided what it means. And that's what they teach. I mean, if you guys want to just believe everything that I say and we can start creating this structure, right, in, 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 our, <laughs> in our system, I'd be okay with that, you know, right? <laughs> you know, this is not how we're supposed to do it. Here's how we're supposed to do it. And of course, this has to be the longest name of all of them, right? You know, because we've got so much that we have to cram into it. We'll just call it LGH, okay? LGH stands for Literal, grammatical, historical. Okay? And basically, what the explanation is actually shorter than the name. <laughs> basically, what it means is when we open the Bible, we're going to consider three main things. What do the words on the page mean in their normal sense? Just like you read everything else. Not hidden meanings, not spiritual meanings, not what you feel like, not all of this other stuff, not what the church... What do the words on the page mean? That's literal. Number two is grammatical. When it was originally written, in the languages that it was originally written, what were the rules of grammar? Were they allowed to use figures of speech? Yes. So when a figure of speech shows up in here, should we be thrown off? Oh, no, it's not literal. No, it's a figure of speech. We do it in English all the time. What are the rules of grammar 
that apply here. Number three, what is the historical context? You know that every word was written to a specific group of people at a specific time in a specific situation. And you know what? They understood what it meant. <gasps> We're arguing about, oh, this must be what it means. And if they could come back, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years later, they'd be like, no, that is not what it means at all. Let me tell you what it means because I was there when it was written. This is what it means. We have to take that into consideration. So when we study the Bible, what do the words on the page say and mean? What is the grammar? What are they allowed to do with their language? And how did the original audience understand it? That's what brings us to the actual meaning. Because there is a principle, and clever name, but it's called the principle of single meaning. And what it says is that there is only one legitimate meaning for any passage, any verse, anything in the whole Bible. One meaning. It can apply in all sorts of different ways. Maybe you're going to take that passage and in the, the period of life you're in, it's going to apply this way. Maybe it's going to apply a little bit differently for me. It'll apply differently for a different church. It can apply in so many different ways based on who and where we are in our spiritual lives and all. But the meaning never changes for any reason. What it meant when Zechariah wrote or Moses wrote or Jesus spoke is the same thing it means today. And if Jesus doesn't come back and we're long dead for another hundred or thousand years, it'll mean the same thing then. The meaning never changes. Never changes for any reason. Only the application, only how we live it out may change based on where we're at right now. Does that make sense? You cool? All right. That's how we do it. That's how I teach. You've picked up on that. Okay. That's how I teach. That's how we work through these things. So if we do that, if we open the Bible and we start in Genesis 1-1 and we read through the Bible and we get to Revelation 22-21, what are some things that we will naturally see? Here's where we're going to end today. Just some things that we're just going to naturally, just you can't help it. If you're doing inductive study, if you're drawing out exegesis, by the way, the opposite is eisegesis, putting into the text. That's sort of deductive study. If we're doing an inductive study, if we're reading the words on the page, what are some of those conclusions that you cannot help but stumble across? You're like, oh, okay, well, that's what it means then. I'm going to put up five, talk through them for just a second, or probably several minutes. And uh, that's where we're going to end this morning. And then next week, we'll get into the, st the process, the actual steps that help get us there. Okay? Number one, a recognition of cumulative revelation. This is why we have to talk through it, because I like big words, right? What does cumulative mean? It just builds on itself, right? Revelation is what we get from God. Something revealed. So when we read the Bible from front to back, what we discover is we, is we recognize that God didn't give us all the information on verse 1. In fact, God sometimes went hundreds or thousands of years before He added new revelation, but it doesn't change what came before. It just builds on it. It's cumulative. Okay? There's a recognition of cumulative God builds on His revelation. Number two, 
a normative dispensational conclusion. All dispensationalism means, or the, the, the nuts and bolts of it, the, the basic part, is that God has worked with different people and different groups in different ways at different times. That's all it means. You can see God working in the Old Testament with one group over here and a different group over here. You're like, hey, you're not allowed to have different rules. Sure he can. He's God. And you move into the New Testament, maybe he changes the rules up a little bit. That's okay. If you're a parent, you've done the same thing. When your children were this big, you had different rules than when they were this big. Right? Maybe you had different rules between boys and girls. Maybe you had different rules. Uh, you had different rules for different people at the same time. I mean, there's all sorts of administrations going on in your house. It's natural. And the, as God gave more and more revelation, He sometimes changed the rules as they grew up. That's okay. You cannot help but understand that that's how it works. A lot of people don't want to see it that way. God has always been exactly the same way, the same rules, the same everything. I'm not saying that God Himself changes. I'm just saying that He parents differently over time. And that's something we all understand. Right? Okay. Number three, there's a clear distinction between Israel and the church. This sort of comes out of, of number two. There are promises, there are blessings, there are curses, there's punishments, disobedience, all sorts of things that are stated to the nation of Israel. There's all sorts of things that are stated to the church, and many of them are different. And so to see, there, there are religions that see that they're the same thing, we're the same group, uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, Israel rejected their Messiah, so God is working with the church now, and Israel's done, and if you just read from start to finish and you don't bring that baggage with you, you'll never see it. You'll never find that in Scripture if you just read the words on the page for what they're saying. There's a clear distinction. And when Jesus comes to take His church, God says, I've still got promises for Israel that I haven't fulfilled yet. And we studied the book of the Revelation last year, and you can go back and watch that again, and we bring that out a lot. Number four, the awareness that God's glory is central to everything in Scripture. This one I want to show you as we get close to the end here. Nope. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, God says, For my own name, for my own sake, I act. God does everything for His own glory. You might think that that's a narcissistic way to live, but it's not when He is God. <laughs> when He deserves all the glory, when He deserves all of the, the honor, that's why we sing to Him, we pray to Him, we serve Him because He is worth it. God acts for His own name and for His own sake. And interestingly, we move into 1 Corinthians 10, and He expects us to do the exact same thing. He says, whether you eat... Or whether you drink, or if there's anything else that I missed, right? In everything that we do, we do it all to the glory of God. That's how He works. That's how He expects us to work. And by the way, even salvation is about the glory of God. I love this. I'll actually put these up here. One of the greatest uh, 
summaries of the doctrine of salvation, what God has done for us, is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And it's broken down into three sections. What the Father did, what the Son did, what the Spirit did. I mean, it's a whole series by itself. It's really, really cool. But the last verse of each of those three sections, 6, 12, and 14, notice on the theme of our salvation, even our salvation isn't about us, it's about Him. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. Everything God does, including saving us, is to His own glory. Isn't that cool? And so, we come to the same conclusion, the same challenge as last week. I'm going to end in the exact same place. The Bible is God's authoritative self-revelation to humanity. What God has revealed about Himself, what He wants us to know. It's His Word. It carries all His authority. It is both true and truth. And this should lead us to a complete submission to the authority of Scripture. So that's why we do it. That is an overview of how not to do it and sort of an intro to how to do it. Next week, we're going to come back. I hope you'll be here. I hope this has been beneficial thinking through these things a little bit. hope this has been helpful to you. Next week, we're going to come back, and I want to present four steps, four easy steps. Well, the steps themselves are not easy, but remembering them is going to be very easy that you can take home, and every time you open the Bible, you're going to do some or all of them. Okay? We call it our basic... Bible study process, but this is the only way, as far as my, I'm concerned, as far as I'm concerned, the LGH method, literal grammatical story, is the only way to study and interpret the Bible so that it stands with God's authority and God's meaning. If I am in complete submission to Scripture, that is how I can elevate it to what it, what it is, really is. The second I start adding my theory to it, I've become the authority, not the Bible. I've got to strip my ideas, my theories, everything out of it and let it speak for itself. That's the only way that we can stand here, we can sit here, we can go out into the world and say, this is what God says. And we can do so with His authority because it's His words. It's not ours anymore.